Welcome to Vineyard Hopkinton. As we follow Jesus together, we experience the Holy Spirit, create a multicultural community, and pursue kingdom of God justice. Um, well, this morning, guys, have you ever had a better idea than God? If we're being honest, you know, I've had some better ideas than God, some better ideas than other people. Um, the last time I was with my sister in Chicago, where she lives, I very nicely offered to park the car downtown. I found a way closer spot than what she directed me to. That was an $85 ticket better idea. Um, a lot of my better ideas actually have to do with saving money. Uh, Friday, I was doing my grocery shopping, and I really should have shelled out that extra $0.10 cents for another bag. I made it to the car. My groceries made it to the car, but it was slow, and I really, I looked like I needed a 10-cent paper bag. All of us think that we have some better ideas than God here. It's our life. We've got strong opinions about our, our, our life. Today we're going to look at a passage from Kings that shows us how God wants to work around, through, in spite of, despite of, some of our better ideas. We're starting this sermon series on the book of Kings. Um, if you have a Bible, there's some extra Bibles around the sanctuary, and there's sermon uh, translations in Spanish and Portuguese uh, in the uh, lobby. The book of Kings, you may not have read it uh, in depth since Sunday school, maybe. It's got some amazing stories. The book of Kings chronicles a period of Israel's history. Um, the end of King David... King Solomon's reign, uh, there's a civil war, a split situation splits into northern southern kingdoms, spans about 370 years, 370 years leading up to 500 years before the birth of Christ. It's an account of the history, uh, but it's not like a year-to-year, decade-to-decade history. It's more of an explanation, an explanation of how we got to where we are it's a showdown between the kings and the prophets, the kings who are typically out to grab wealth, power, uh, and the prophets who are trying desperately to steer them in the different directions. So the, king, the kings are like in the driver's seat of the country, culture, economics. The prophets are passenger seat, back seat. Sometimes they're stuck in the trunk, uh, trying to direct the country onto a better course. Uh, the kings were supposed, so really the book evaluates. We've got 40 different kings. Uh, the kings were just supposed to worship God, the real God. Worship Yahweh uh, and, and follow the law laid out in the Torah. The prophets, and we, there are a lot of different prophets uh, that we'll see as we go through the book of Kings. The main ones are Elijah and Elisha. Their job is to speak on God's behalf, uh, to help Israel to be Israel. Uh, when there's false worship, to call that out. Uh, when there's oppression, injustice towards the poor, to call that out. And just challenge Israel to change uh, and follow the scriptures. Because of this, the prophets are not always popular but they are powerful. Powerful not in and of their own, but powerful because they are following the word of God. That's where their authority and their power comes from. 
So today we're going to look at a story that really shows us following God in his terms, uh, not on our terms, and how good that is. So let's pray, and then we'll open the scriptures. Jesus, this morning, would you really just speak truth to our hearts? We lay aside distractions. We lay aside our own personal agenda for ourselves, for this morning. Jesus, would you write the agenda? Holy Spirit, would you speak truth to us? Would you bring healing? And would your word just be an anchor and a base and just everything to us this morning? In Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So we are going to be in 2 Kings chapter 5. Uh, we've got a little bit of a longer passage, but it's a really good one, guys. The king of Aram had great admiration for Naaman, the commander of his army, because through him the Lord had given Aram great victories. But though Naaman was a mighty warrior, he suffered from leprosy. At this time, the country of uh, Aram, they sent raiders uh, into the land of Israel, and among their captives was a young girl who had been given to Naaman's wife as a maid. One day the girl said to her mistress, I wish my master would go see the prophet in Samaria. He would heal him of his leprosy. I love how credit is given to this little enslaved girl. So Naaman told the king what the young girl from Israel had said. Go visit the prophet. The king said, I will send a letter of introduction for you and take to, the, to take to the king of Israel. So Naaman started out carrying his gifts, 750 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold, 10 sets of clothing. The letter to the king of Israel said, with this letter, I present my servant Naaman. I want you to heal him of his leprosy. Naaman was a mighty man of God, but, but. Friends, some of us today, we've got a lot going for us. Maybe a good job, uh, maybe a family. You know, we live in Massachusetts. Uh, we live in America. Some of us have a lot going for us, just like Naaman did. But there are limits. There are things that we cannot change, that we do not have control of. We don't have control over the global financial uh, markets. We don't have control over other people, family members. We don't always have control over our own emotions. They're just realities of our nature, of our jealousies and fears. Leprosy wasn't curable. There's no condemnation in this for name, and there's no condemnation for us. What's your but what's beyond your control this morning? And you say, yeah, I've got it. I've got it going on. But there's this thing that I, I, I can't control. The letter to the king of Israel said, with this letter and about a hundred or about one and a half million dollars in today's currency, I present my servant Naaman. I want you to heal him of his leprosy. When the king of Israel read this letter, he tore his clothes in dismay and said, Am I God? Can I give life and take it away? Why is this man asking me to heal someone with leprosy? I'd be upset too. You give me $2 million, tell me to cure COVID, I won't be happy. I can see that he's just trying to pick a fight with me. 
But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes in dismay, he sent this message to him. Why are you upset? Send Naaman to me. Then he will learn that there is a true prophet in Israel. Naaman went with his horse and chariot and waited at the door of Elisha's house. It's a whole parade. Knock, knock. But Elisha sent a messenger out to him with this message. Go and wash yourself seven times in the Jordan River. Seven was the number of times the priest would sprinkle holy water. Seven was the number of completion. Then your skin will be restored. You'll be healed of your leprosy. But Naaman became angry and stalked away. I thought he would certainly have come out to meet me. I expected him to wave his hand over the leprosy and call on the name of the Lord and heal me. Aren't the rivers of Damascus, the Banan, far better than any of these rivers in Israel, these dirty little streams? Why shouldn't I wash in them and be healed? So Naaman turned and went away in a rage. He prepared this great thing. He got it all together. He did his best. It wasn't only an expense to him. He got other people on the line to, to help him. Like lots of people had invested in this. He is not being lazy with this. But it appears that this prophet is being quite lazy with his request. His pride. His preparation. Do you ever feel kind of blasted by God? You, you have this great good idea, godly idea. And then God's like, nah. It might, might be a good sign. But his officers tried to reason with him and said, sir, if the prophet had told you to do something very difficult, wouldn't you have done it? So you should certainly obey him when he says simply, go wash and be cured. Servants are very smart. So Naaman went down to the Jordan River, dipped himself seven times, as the man of God had instructed him. And his skin became as healthy as the skin of a young child. He was healed. Then Naaman and his entire party went back to find the man of God. They stood before him and Naaman said, Now I know, now I know, that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. So please accept a gift from your servant." Elisha replied, as surely as the Lord lives, I will not accept any gifts. Though Naaman urged him, Elisha refused. Naaman said, all right, but please allow me to load two of my mules with earth from this place. You know, load it up with dirt. I'll bring it back home, set up a little altar for the God of Israel. Uh, from now on, I will never again offer burnt offerings or sacrifices to any other God except the Lord this dirt is how he wanted to show his devotion. However, may the Lord pardon me in this one thing. When my master, the king, goes into the temple of the god Rimmon to worship there, and he leans on my arm, may the Lord pardon me when I bow down also. Go in peace, Elisha said. So Naaman started home again. Friends, the answer isn't in the river the answer was in Naaman's obedience. He obeyed, and then he worshiped God, dedicating himself to, to God, even thinking through the ways, wait a minute, I'm doing this, and it's going to be hard as the, right, the king's right-hand man to do it. He experienced healing through obedience, responds in worship. But Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, said to himself, 
My master should not have let this Aramean get away without accepting any of his gifts. Someone should profit from all of this. Why not me? I uh, ran off after Naaman. Is everything all right? Naaman asked him. Yes, Gehazi said. Uh, you know, we, we're fine, says Gehazi, but you know, not that we want anything, but do you see there are these two new guys who have just joined us and you know, they don't even have any clothes, no money, maybe a little something for them. By all means, take as much uh, silver, uh, take twice as much, Naaman insisted. He gave him clothing, tied up the money, sent two of his servants to carry the gifts. If you need two dudes to carry all the money, it's a good amount. Gehazi said, actually, as we get closer to the house, I would prefer to carry it all myself. This needs to be a solo venture. Then he went and hid the gifts inside the house. When he went into his master, Elisha asked him, Where you been, Gehazi? Who, me? <laughs> Nowhere. Elisha asked him, Don't you realize that I was there in spirit when Naaman stepped down from his chariot to meet you? Is this the time to receive money and clothing, olive groves and vineyard, sheep and cattle, male and female servants? Gehazi didn't get all these things. That's what he wanted. Because you have done this, you and your descendants will suffer from Naaman's leprosy forever. When Gehazi left the room, he was covered with leprosy. His skin was white as snow. Obedience cured Naaman. Disobedience cursed Gehazi. God is not a game. Naaman, the pagan, obeyed God and was cured. Gehazi, the servant, uh, who was the servant, this great man of God who knew so much, he disobeyed and he was cursed. Gehazi had become a taker of the things of God rather than a, a, a giver. He shows us that we need to keep our motivation and our, our minds and our hearts pure when we deal with the amazing work of God. So Naaman was a mighty man, but he had this thing that he could not cure, could not solve for himself. Like many of us, what our thing is, God could. And in obedience, he experienced transformation. I think there are a couple of lessons for us today. Number one, transformation happens when we get desperate enough to do something. Transformation happens when we get desperate enough to listen to the servants, the little girl. When we get desperate enough to ask the big favor from our boss, to spend, to expend, desperate enough to travel, desperate enough to obey. Friends, this morning, are we actually desperate for the things of God? Are we desperate enough to change? Do we want the things of God so badly? Are we desperate for God to move in our lives? You know, there are a lot of changes that I would have liked, that I thought about, that I considered, that I wished for, that I just didn't care enough to actually make it a priority, to actually change around my life, to actually make sacrifices because I wasn't desperate. 
I think a lot of the time we're not actually desperate for the things of God. We want it. We wish for it. Uh, uh, we pout over it. But we're not desperate enough to throw off everything else that holds us back. We're demanding, maybe, but not desperate. You know the difference. Sometimes I'll settle in on the couch with, with a book, get all comfy, have my evening planned out or something. Say, you know what would be nice? Something to drink. Ah, would you like to make me a cup of tea? No. Okay, well, here's a kid. Glass of water, perhaps? No. You know, I wasn't really that thirsty anyways. I'd like it. I like it enough to ask. Maybe want it enough to complain, but I don't want it enough to actually change. Don't want to get up off that couch. Demanding is sitting. Demanding is a wish. Desperation is an action. Desperation is running after something. A demand is wanting it. Desperation is needing it. And we demand on other people. We go to church and say, just make it better. Make it, make it all better. We demand on maybe our spouse. Go to our spouse and say, just make it better. Help me do this. Change that. We demand on our coworkers. We demand on, on our boss. But if we're desperate, if we're desperate, we'll go to God and we'll run after him. If we're desperate and we want it so badly, we won't accept anything else. We'll keep going. We'll hit our knees. We'll keep praying until God actually moves. Are we desperate for God to move or are we just demanding on other people. A while ago, um, my daughter got her ears pierced, and uh, you know you get the better earrings right right after. You know the good kind that aren't going to make your ears swell up or any infections. They're a little bit more expensive, and uh, the first pair was lost. Okay, so you buy a second pair, and they were put right by the sink, and then got knocked down, and you just watched them go down the drain, lost forever. It's not a fun experience. So my daughter was a little sad. And uh, she turns to my husband and she's like, Daddy, make me happy. <laughs> so sweet. And uh, Stephen was like, Aw, honey, only you and Jesus can make you happy. And then I think he sang a song and told some jokes and, you know, she smiled and everything. But there's real truth to that. We go to other people and we say, make me happy, make me happy, fix this. When we are desperate for God, we go to God and no one else. We look to him and we keep going, we keep begging, we keep pleading, we keep praying. Friends, this morning I think there's an invitation to not demand of other people, but to be desperate for God. Desperate enough to keep praying. Desperate enough to change. Desperate enough to do what God says. And that's the second thing. Transformation happens when we are willing to lay down control and entitlement and do it God's way. 
Naaman's healing almost didn't happen because of his pride and his better ideas than God. I'm sure that I have missed out on a lot because of my pride and my better ideas. I'm determined that it doesn't happen again. Ronald Rollheiser says that pride is refusing to be small before God and live in our interconnectedness with God and other people. We are all standing before God and others with empty hands. Transformation requires vulnerability, confession, um, humility, and moving towards others. One poet said, what we fight against is so tiny, what fights us is so great. And I feel this. What we fight against is so tiny. Netflix, chocolate, money, sexuality, it's all tiny. But the fight, the fight is massive. Seven dips in the river, that's nothing. But it's everything. Naaman wanted to be special. And Naaman, he was, he was a special dude. He wanted to go to Elisha and say, look, look. And he wanted Elisha to say, that is really bad. I can't believe you've survived this. And then Elisha, like, he chants and he sweats and he prays real hard. Maybe he grunts. And then finally, it's accomplished. Woo, that was a close one. Elisha doesn't even come out to look at his leprosy. He doesn't bother to write a prescription. Uh, Elijah just, hey, Janitor, come here. There's a guy out in the the waiting room freaking out about his leprosy. You'll recognize him by the suitcases of money. Tell him, go dip in the Jordan seven times, and then you come back and finish mopping the floors. It's like miraculous malpractice. Uh, the, the, The priest would have sprinkled holy water seven times. Uh, Elijah just said, go out into the public river seven times. It was taking the temple formula, putting out in the most common uh, uh, way possible. Sometimes we have to let our transformation be as normal as everybody else's. See, I think my problems are special. I think my problems are fascinating Uh, special, unique, story-worthy, sometimes novel-worthy. The Bible says there's nothing new under the sun. Your shocking sin, boring, uh, your, your big problems that others have been through worse, our needs are sacred, not unique. I think we get this backwards. We think that our needs are very unique, exceptional, actually, worse than that, than that. We don't think that they are precious opportunities to meet with God. My problems are, are a meeting place for me and God. They are important. Uh, my hurt leads me to Jesus. My hurt leads me to healing. My pain is precious and valuable to God. My problems are not different from other people's. Uh, They're not badges of being exceptional. It's not for public complaint or sympathy or or pity points. I say this knowing that, you know, some of you have 
really larger problems. Some of you are facing very tough circumstances financially, great stress and pressure with, with, with jobs. I'm glad I don't have the job stress. I mean, real things with family, addiction, loss. Naaman had leprosy. Leprosy was like, that, that's cancer. That, that, that's bad before the medical system. We are much more eager to have big public complaints than to have holy, tender moments with God. We are more in tune to others' reaction than to God's healing. We measure and rate our troubles, not let them simply compel us to God. Friends, your problems are not for show, but for healing. All the hurt and pain and stress we experience is an opportunity from God. I'm learning this very slowly. When I experience tension, um, stress, sadness, sorrow, now our natural reaction is to say, make it stop, fix it, make it go away. What's wrong with me that I feel jealousy and insecurity and fear? Um, maybe what's wrong with them that they're doing this? Instead, I'm learning to say, God, what are you doing here? Without any condemnation, like, oh, I feel that. Okay. God, what are you doing here? What's the opportunity? What do you want to bring healing to in this situation? What are you working here? What are you doing? Our hurt is not for show or complaint. It's for healing. Our problems are opportunities for God to work and to move. Whatever your pain is, it's a sacred place with God. Don't waste it. Our problems are not exceptional. They are valuable and precious. Naaman's healing was made ordinary. Our transformation is just as ordinary and just as amazing. This means instead of seven dips in the river, seven days of dipping into the word of God. Instead of going to the Jordan, going to church. Most of us do not have servants to listen to. Maybe it means listening to our small group. The spiritual disciplines, what God has commit, told and directed us to for our own healing. Prayer, meditating on the word of God community. We're like, no, 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 God, my problems are bigger. I need something amazing. God says seven dips in the ordinary, public, normal river. In my life, nobody has waved a hand over my life and healed it and transformed it. But boy, has my life transformed. My life is totally different than it was at 20 30. Myself, I'm different than I was just a couple years ago. I'm hard-pressed to point to big, amazing miracles. Seen many real ones add up. 
But if I waited for something big, impressive, extraordinary to change my life, my life wouldn't have changed. I remember uh, in college when I was just starting to, to follow Jesus, um, so I'd say, you know, really you should go to church on Sunday mornings. It's like, okay, is anyone going to drive me? Okay, if I, you just do it. Um, then uh, when I was, you know, a, a little bit older back in the States again, someone said to me, you know, really, Sarah? I think you should go to counseling. That one hurt a little bit more. Um, and, okay, fine, I'll, I'll do it. These little steps add up. I'm very happy with the work of the Lord. I think my life has totally transformed. No one waved a hand over it, grunted, chanted, sweated. But I'm very grateful. You know, Naaman, he didn't understand the seven baths thing. He wasn't Jewish. Um, He didn't understand the seven sprinkles with, with holy water. What would have happened if after number five or six, he's like, I'm getting a little tired of it. This water is even dirtier than I was anticipating. I mean, think of it. You go all the way in, get wet, come all the way back out. Do you have to like dry off all the way? Like how dry do you have to be to get wet again? Um, I'm not sure they even brought enough towels for all of this. What would have happened if after number five, Number six, Naaman said, I think that's good enough. Friends, obedience precedes transformation today. Obedience precedes transformation today. Whatever it is that you are wanting transformation in, stay obedient. If it's your home, act like God is bringing peace and calm now. Don't wait for all to be, uh, now. if it's with your marriage, start being kind and loving and calm with your spouse now. And God will be, bring the transformation. Start spending your money well and, and wisely and generously now, and God will bring the financial transformation. Obedience precedes transformation. And friends, I don't think Naaman had the best attitude. I know he did it. I know he, did, he agreed. Okay, we came all this way. I'll do it. I think he got in that Jordan River like, oh my gosh, (laughs) you see this? Okay. God still healed him anyways. God saw his attitude. Even if he kept a mask on, God knew. Maybe some of us today, we know our hearts. We know our attitudes. We know it's not the best. It'd be nice if that changed. That'd be good. But obedience precedes transformation. Enthusiasm is optional. Obedience isn't. Mm-hmm.